Hi, and welcome to the Slush Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage, where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Leila Jana is the founder and CEO of Samasource and LXMI, two ventures that focus on reducing poverty. Kalle Freese interviewed her about how to tackle poverty through work and not charity. Thank you, everyone. It's great to see so many of you here. I'm doing a lot of these interviews today, and this is the one that I'm personally probably the most excited about, uh, getting to talk with Leila. So to sort of start right off the bat, how did you start working with Samasaurus? What, what, what was the inspiration or, or the moment? So I feel like I was kind of called to do this work. I, I went to Africa really randomly when I was 17. I graduated a semester early from high school, mostly just to have an adventure somewhere. And I had a scholarship from, of all places, a big tobacco company. They gave me $10,000, so I felt guilty about using that money for school, and I used it instead to go and volunteer in Africa. And, um, and I was really transformed by the experience, because when you see people living on less than $2 a day, you see an entirely different side of the world that I was never exposed to. My parents come from India, and they would tell me stories about poverty back home, but it never really made sense to me until I really lived with people um, at that income level. And you see so much avoidable tragedy. There was a kid in our village who died because his parents couldn't afford a $5 malaria medication, I found out after the fact. I mean, just so many things that just wouldn't even occur to us as something that happens. And the other thing that I realized very profoundly in Ghana is that the traditional aid model of giving people handouts is very paternalistic. It's kind of denying the agency and the humanity of the people that we're trying to help, and it's creating a very one-way relationship that I think doesn't properly value the talent in a lot of places like, like rural West Africa. So what I saw in Ghana was a group of people who were tremendously hungry for opportunity, and there were just very few jobs. And that's where I decided I wanted to start something like Samasource down the line. And then years later, I found the opportunity through the digital economy. Right. And I think that so many of the people he, uh, here that I've been talking with recently want to make an impact with what they do. Um, and we have these huge issues like climate change or poverty, but there's no necessarily one answer to the whole question. How, do you, how did you find that angle uh, of, of to start Samasaur specifically to sort of alleviate the poverty? Yeah. So I always... You know, when I think about a problem as complex as poverty or climate change, you, you try to go to the root cause of the issue to try to find the solution, right? And go back to what Elon Musk calls the, the first principles. And so most of the problems that we try to solve through philanthropy, lack of clean drinking water, childhood malnutrition, you know, lots of health problems, almost all of these problems are rooted in one thing, which is very low household income. So if you make under about $3 a day, you're almost guaranteed to suffer from all of these other problems. And what's interesting is if you move people's income to above that level, you typically see all of these problems go away quite naturally. So really the root problem of so many of the issues that we try to solve through philanthropy is low household income is poverty. So then it follows that the best solution is to figure out how to increase those incomes as quickly as possible. And we can do that in two ways. We can give cash 
which is now being done around the world. There's all these initiatives to do universal basic income or what are called direct cash transfers, a fancy way of just saying hand, handing a poor person cash. Or preferably, we can create a job that gives cash more sustainably over a longer period of time and also gives community and skills and dignity and a whole range of other things. But really, we now know, and there's lots of evidence that shows us that this model works so much better than when we as wealthy Westerners show up in a poor African village and build them a well or a school, which we don't even know if they need, and we don't know who's going to maintain it. And then local people have no incentive or ownership of that infrastructure. So, so the whole aid model, I think, is, is pretty fundamentally broken, and a lot of it is based on good intentions from the West, but not necessarily what drives results if you look at long-term studies on, on low-income people. What are your thoughts on some of the more um, sort of mindful uh, philanthropic foundation like the Gates Foundation or sort of the effective altruism movement uh, compared to social entrepreneurship? I, I wrote an, an op-ed in the Boston Review about effective altruism and I, I completely agree with a new approach which is grounded in data. And we're trying to understand, just as we would before we launch a drug to the market, you have an obligation, an ethical obligation, to make sure that the drug works. And before you launch a new poverty, anti-poverty intervention, you also have to make sure it works. So there's this movement around randomized controlled trials and experimentation, again, the same way that we look at drug efficacy, to look at the efficacy of poverty reduction programs. And I'm very inspired by this because it's bringing a new level of transparency and also um, a new level of, of sort of rigor to something that's previously been very touchy-feely, right? Previously, we, we looked at nonprofit efficacy or philanthropic efficacy. We looked at how, how nonprofits spent their money. Are they spending the money on poor people or are they spending it on salaries? Well, that's total BS, right? If you want to run a good organization, you shouldn't be measuring your impact based on how you're dividing up your budget. You should be looking at outcomes and whether your model is actually driving outcomes. So for me, the most profound outcome that we should be looking for is whether our intervention is increasing the income of the people we're trying to help. And then you look at how they spend that increased income. And typically you find that when you increase the income of a poor person from $2 to, in the case of Samasaurus, we do $8 a day, we see a whole change in their life. So they move out of the slum, they start buying healthier food, they send their kids to decent schools, they get health insurance. So all of the things that we would try to solve through philanthropy get solved when we increase that income. And that's something that's very measurable and very tangible and easy to report on. What would be your advice to a 20-something attendee in Slush who wants to make an impact with, with what, what they work on and what they will be working on? So it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but my, my advice would not be to go work for a charity or a philanthropy, but actually to work for a business and to influence how that business chooses its vendors and runs its supply chain. So I have a book that just came out, and I did a lot of research for this book, and it's fascinating, but the, the biggest 2,000 companies in the world, the global 2,000, spend $12 trillion every year on goods and services. So the GDP of Sub-Saharan Africa is 1.8 trillion. The entire global aid budget is less than about $40 billion. So the biggest chance we have to change the world is to change the way this money is spent. So imagine if even just 1% of that 12 trillion were going to vendors like Samasource that have a social impact by hiring low-income people. Imagine if, and there, there are all kinds of new vendors that are doing this. There are nonprofit factories that hire low-income people. And it doesn't have to be all of the supply chain. It can be incremental over time. So that's the biggest chance we have to change the world. And it's been famously said, your values are reflected in your budget. 
That's true for individuals, it's true for households, it's especially true for big companies that I think have tremendous power to change, to change the world. All right, I think we can jump into some audience questions. First of all, Ilona Mooney um, asks, as consumers, what proof should we ask from companies to demonstrate that the jobs that they're giving are good or at least decent? So um, in the technological age, it's pretty easy to dig around on a company's website. Um, in the case of Luxme, we have a skincare brand we started, which is Fairtrade. It's the first Fairtrade and organic brand at Sephora in the US. And to prove the transparency, Every product has a number on it. You can type that number into our website and you, you can actually see the women who picked the nuts, the raw ingredients that are in that jar of skin cream. It's a traceability on our own website. A lot of companies are doing this now. They're featuring stories of the workers. They're, they're publishing data. We're trying to get more and more to be transparent. Um, you, if, you, if you're not measuring it, you can't change it. So it kind of starts there. The second thing you can look for as a consumer is a social label. So there are a number of labels that actually mean something. And people are cynical, but I have to say I've seen how these audits work in, in practice. And some of them are really robust and impressive. Fair trade is a big one. If you're going to buy coffee or chocolate or any commodity, even t-shirts, buy a fair trade shirt. And the chance that a worker has been harmed in that supply chain is extremely low. So it's really the best bet is to look for that label. The organic label is a big one as well. It means no pesticides or fertilizers were used in producing an agricultural output. Generally, that means better conditions for the workers. And uh, lastly, there's this growing movement called B Corporation or Benefit Corporations that is now um, includes companies like Patagonia and Method and Etsy and Warby Parker. It's a growing movement for companies that have an overt social or environmental mission. And to go through the benefit corporation process is a long, it's a long process, they really vet you. So if you're looking at just these labels, you already have billions and billions of dollars of companies to choose from as a consumer or as a business. And lastly, um, we're starting to produce a guide. We want to make it really easy if you're in charge of spending decisions at your company to find a vendor that's doing good. So we have a, a website called givework.org. And if you go there, there's a guide on the website that lists about 5,000 companies that do, that do good by giving work through the supply chain. So they're similar to Samasource, but in every category. You can find a local baker to cater your holiday Christmas party or a t-shirt provider to do corporate swag. And even these incremental changes can make a big difference. So you were talking a little bit about funding and that you raised funding for your for-profit uh, sort of subsidiary of, of Samasource and that uh, the investors are not necessarily looking for VC-scale returns. However, VCs are holding a lot of money and holding a lot of power uh, and might not be compelled to sort of back so many um, social enterprises. Do you think that ICOs could provide some sort of a different funding models for a, a companies that aim to generate longer-term impact? Yeah, if anyone wants to help us ICO Samasource, let me know. I'd be really curious. We, we just launched... Um, a for-profit vehicle within, so the nonprofit basically owns a subsidiary business into which a lot of our contracts go, and we've now sold an equity share in that subsidiary business to a European impact fund that is very concerned with moving people out of poverty through a market model. So I think there's a growing number of investors who are tired of the traditional model. They don't just want to put their money into another startup that's solving a problem for the 1%. Frankly, like, I think that's kind of boring, and sadly, that's where a lot of the innovation is happening in Silicon Valley. 
is like smart home devices for rich people. So, so I think there's a real interest, and we've seen this in crowdfunding, among consumers and average people who aren't necessarily big-time investors or venture capitalists to maybe not make 10x their money, but make their money back with 10 or 20% return, which would be much better than the markets have done. We're offering basically like a 10% return at Sama uh, annualized, and it's a pretty stable business. A lot of social businesses, I think, can offer not that crazy multiple that VCs are, build their models around, but something modest. And I think that lends itself really well to a more crowdfunded approach. We haven't really gone into the mechanism of, of an ICO yet. I think we're probably likely to raise our first round just through impact investors. But I think the, the um, opportunity for social impact there is really huge. If you, could, if you had a magic wand and, and you could wave that wand and change one thing on how VCs and investors approach or think of uh, social enterprise, enterprises or, or impact companies, what would you want to change? Well, I think presently the biggest problem in venture capital is the fact that women make up only 8% of the partnership. And I think whenever you have such a strong imbalance in any direction, it's bad. It's bad for the world. You end up, I think, only looking at certain types of companies and only measuring success in a certain way. I think diversifying the partnership of venture capital firms would do a lot to increase the number of social enterprises that are considered by those firms and the number of different types of companies. And then secondly, I think um, the way that we measure success really needs to change. I know a lot of people who've worked in venture capital who are really depressed and cynical. After five or six years, they're like, why are we backing more companies that produce tiny incremental innovations for, again, for wealthy people who don't really need like another smart oven, right? And I think, I think that group of people is curious about ways that we can measure things like poverty reduction um, through, through investing in startups. So I, I feel like there's many more ways now to measure that social impact, and maybe there could be more funds that look at metrics other than just you know, uh, profit and return. And they're already, they're already happening. So I think several here, funds that I talk to are interested in impact investing, and they look at things like the outcomes for, for maybe CO2 emissions or the outcomes for poverty reduction, and they look at those metrics alongside the financial metrics when they consider investment. And I think more and more family offices are doing this as well. Once you've made your money and you're already successful, now you're looking at how you can leave a legacy you know, for future generations. I couldn't agree more. I think we could agree, um, start taking questions. So when you have the catch box, could you stand up? So we have easier time seeing you. Hi, my name is Ray. Whoops. I'm uh, working for Airbus, and I'm specifically interested in innovation that is linked to hardware. So my question to Leila would be, um, and I'm especially interested in uh, the African context, because we are uh, struggling, let's say, to find entrepreneurs that also know how to master hardware and combine this with the digital assets. So my question goes in the direction of what is your experience with hardware innovation in a social context? And how would you give advice to go forward on that? Um, it's interesting. I, I see more and more uh, innovation in this space, especially in business schools and technology schools. So like MIT has a bunch of hardware innovation that's focused on social and environmental impact. And Stanford Business School has a program called Design for Extreme Affordability. Um, and several hardware and physical products have come out of that program that are targeting social impact. So I think it's, it's happening. Um, and I would just say, like, it's happening because the entrepreneurs themselves are no longer satisfied with just going into a traditional tech company or going and making products that don't have a social impact. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, thanks.
All right, do we have more questions in the audience? Raise your hand. Okay, we got one there. Hey, Leila. Um, my name is Joscha, and I'm part of a company that is um, doing similar thing than, than SummerSource in North Africa, training young unemployed youth um, and then integrating them in companies remotely, have them work with international clients. So my question would be to you, in the beginning, what were the main challenges in building up SummerSource? So, so what were the main yeah. challenges in, in building, building up SummerSource when you started up? So I started Sama in September 2008, which was arguably like the worst month in the last 100 years to start a nonprofit. Um, and, uh, and the biggest challenge I faced was the perception that if you're working with low-income people, that the products and services will be of lower quality. This is something I tell a lot of social entrepreneurs. You can't put a product out there and say, oh, it's good for the world and think that people are going to buy it. Being good for the world will not make anyone buy your product, sadly. What makes people buy a product is if it fulfills a need they have effectively, especially compared with other products they could buy for the same price. So we learned very quickly that on a, from the marketing perspective, when we market to corporate customers, our emphasis is really on the quality of the data we provide. So we're now actually the largest data services company in East Africa. We employ close to 2,000 people. And most of the work we do is uh, training data for machine learning and computer vision teams. So we supply image tagging services to autonomous vehicle companies, for example. And the way we've grown is really through word of mouth among data scientists in that very narrow category who've worked with us before. They see really good results. They move to another company. They bring us in as a vendor. So I think when you develop a reputation for quality, that kind of transcends anything else and, and people are going to buy from you. And then the social impact, I think, creates an extra stickiness. So if you have a delay on the project or if you mess up at some point, I think the customer is mindful of the fact that you're also solving a social problem. And maybe they're more willing to consider you in the long run as a partner. And I think it also helps with marketing and branding. So if you have an amazing story to tell, people want to hear that story. And so you get a lot of free publicity and PR. And I tell people, maybe that's one of the reasons to consider building more social impact. The impact has to really be there. You can't lie about it. But once it's there, I think it makes a much more compelling story. And all other things being equal, why wouldn't you hire the vendor that has high quality and also addresses a social problem? It's like a win-win. All right, do we have more questions in the audience? I think we have, okay, we have one there in the front. Um, I would like to know about business models for social entrepreneurship. Uh, what was your inspiration for Samasource and what do you recommend in terms of our thinking to us entrepreneurs to come up with the right business model? Uh, how many of you have heard of Mohammed Yunus? Anyone? Okay, a few people. So. Um, Check him out. He's the founder of Grameen Bank, which is um, one of the largest microfinance banks in the world. And he's the originator of the concept of microfinance, the idea that you can give small loans to very low-income people and that they have a very high repayment rate. And that's one way that you can enfranchise them in the global economy and enable them to be entrepreneurs. So I'd read his book, uh, Banker to the Poor, when I was thinking about starting SamaSource, and I was really impressed by this linking of a big industry, banking, with a problem like poverty, and no one had connected those dots before. Previously, you know, and we still live in a world where we think tackling poverty is purely for nonprofits to, to handle, and then business is over here, and business is about profit maximizing. But really, all of the most interesting social and environmental innovation in the world is happening in between those two poles. It's happening in this new field of what is called social business, is organizations that use the market mechanism, that use a business model to fight a social or environmental problem. So that's really what inspired me, and he, he talked about how looking at 
at people who were traditionally recipients of charity as people who might receive a loan or looking at them as a customer base or looking at them as workers can fundamentally transform our relationship with them and, and make them better off. So that's kind of how I started. I started with how can I create a business that employs lots of low-income people but also solves a problem in the market so that we can be at least break-even. And his Parameters for Social Business is a non-loss company, so you have to be profitable, but he argues that you should not offer dividends so that the owners of the company don't have so much of a profit motive. I'm a little bit different. I think you can offer dividends and you can offer some return, but generally the return is not going to be the same as a traditional VC-backed company, and there are more and more people who are fine with that. Personally, I'm okay if I don't become a billionaire because on my deathbed I want to feel like I impacted billions of people and I think that's going to be more satisfying to me. And I think many people in this category feel that way as well. So my advice if you're a social entrepreneur is, is think about a real problem that the market has that your social enterprise can fulfill. In our case, it's the need for high quality training data. Make sure you have a quality solution to that problem. And the social impact, I think, can often come from the way that you do the business. The people that you hire, um, the considerations you make if you're sourcing something from, uh, from the environment, you know, things like the sustainability um, uh, lens that I was talking about earlier with conservation incentives. And I think that's a much more powerful and sustainable way to solve a problem than a simple charity model. Do we have any more in the audience? All right, we got one there. Hi, my name's uh, Yari. I'm uh, involved with a company that does pay as you go phones in Nigeria. And uh, we're trying to raise a seed round. What's your advice uh, in, in terms of trying to get people that have money and they care about Africa, how, how can they find us? How can I find them? Um, I would look at impact investing groups. Um, the SOCAP is a really big one, the Social Capital Markets Conference that brings together tons of impact investors. And there's, I would say, like dozens of impact investor networks that bring together people who care about this. That said, Nigeria is such a fast-growing economy, and if you look at some of the successes of programs like M-Pesa in Kenya, I think you can convince pretty regular venture capitalists that this is a smart investment just on the basis of the potential returns, um, even not considering the social impact. There are several Y Combinator-backed companies coming out of Nigeria. Yeah. All right, final one? Well, I got one. Um, so you just wrote a book. And besides that book, what, what is the, the most gifted book you've, the book you've gifted most or, or recommended most? Oh, that's such a good one. Um, there's an entrepreneur in the US called Brian Stevenson. He works on the death penalty, which probably most people here, if you're European, you would find this like completely crazy and abhorrent, but we still kill people in the US uh, for committing certain crimes. And um, some of the people in that system, we're not even sure they committed those crimes or the crimes were things that happened when they were under 18, for example, and they are in prison for years and years and then, and then killed. So he works on issues that affect mostly very low income, minority, mostly African American people. Um, and he's been such an inspiration to a lot of social entrepreneurs. He lives in Montgomery, Alabama, which is a very segregated, very poor place. And he's managed to overturn some of the worst statutes that we have around things like juvenile offenders, you know, 12-year-olds who are put in adult prisons, for example. He wrote a book called Just Mercy that will, if you read it, like don't read it in a plane because you're just going to start crying and embarrassing yourself, but it's, it's an incredible and inspiring book. And for me, like, I try to think how I'm going to view my life when I'm 80 and whether I'm going to be proud of what I did. And people like him inspire me to keep going even when it's really hard. So check out his book. 
That's a great finish. Thank you so much, Layla. Let's give a big hand. Thanks for listening to the Slush Podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.